I don't have to tell you this. You know that the world can be a dark place. But have you ever thought about whose job it is to combat that darkness? The people who take some of the riskiest jobs, like hunting child abductors, recovering human remains, or tracking international fugitives. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and in my show Dark Arenas, you'll hear firsthand accounts from people who work in professions that deal with the deviant and defy the dangerous. Each episode of Dark Arenas is going to give you a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to investigate the most heinous crimes and most violent criminals in society. You're going to learn about the people who choose these jobs and who stay working in them despite the tolls they take. Enter the darkness of espionage, fugitive hunting, crime scene recreation, and more on Dark Arenas. Listen to Dark Arenas now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you ever seriously pissed off your in-laws? A couple of years ago, I started investigating a murder in my wife's family. Why would I do something so stupid? Well, partly because I've come to suspect that the woman who was killed is haunting the house I grew up in. There was a weight in the bed like somebody was in it. I woke up because my bed was shaking. So it would be like, shake, 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 shake. But mainly because I think someone in the family might have got away with murder. And my in-laws? Well, they're not exactly thrilled about it. You are deconstructing an age-old story. We're going to be more traumatised by this podcast than we were about the murder, I'll tell you that. There is going to be blowback. I'm Tristan Redman, and from Wandering in Pineapple Street Studios, this is Ghost Story, a podcast about the things that come back to haunt us. Follow Ghost Story on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Ghost Story ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Please note that this episode contains depictions of violence that some people may find disturbing. The Norwich Police Department is a long brick building that overlooks three rivers flowing into the small town where Eugene Maloff grew up. That's where Detective Jim Curtis spent his days in 2009, sifting through the files of Maloff's cold case. I've already been a cop for 15 years. Well, the shit I'd seen in Norwich plus the shit I'd seen in New York, there's probably not much I hadn't seen. Curtis had graying blonde hair and bright blue eyes. He'd been following the Maloff case since the 911 call came in on that chilly spring night in 2004. When the murder trial fell apart in late 2008, Curtis was handpicked by his police chief to reinvestigate Malov's cold case. The chief state's attorney's office up in Hartford said, you guys better square this shit away. I was a hustler. I'd done a big burglary case just before this. Oh, I just worked my ass off. Just want to get to the truth. Curtis and his partner gave themselves six months to get through all the materials from the last investigation and come up with a list of suspects and witnesses. He had to go back to the very beginning. You really deeply get into this person's you know, life. Everything from their finances to their friends, to their work, to their, where they went to school, what kind of car they drive, where they go on vacation. I needed more than just people saying he was a good guy. We really had to develop that. It was a lot of ground to cover. For one, there were the conspiracies, tons of tips coming into the police. And in fact, they'd only gain more steam after the murder trial fell apart. Where there's a large void of information, I think that promotes conspiracy theory. And over the years, these ideas that Dr. Malov had been murdered by powerful people had migrated from the fringe into the alternative energy world itself. 
with one researcher even saying, since Malov was increasingly successful in his attempts to make cold fusion accepted by the scientific community at large, then obviously Malov was an unacceptable threat and he had to go. Another cold fusioneer, this one a former astronaut no less, went as far as to claim most of us in the field believe that this murder was an assassination. There's some people that believe this guy was the guy who's gonna upend the apple cart. A lot of this stuff, until you start going in the right direction, you gotta kind of keep it sitting around. Curtis pulled out every name associated with Dr. Malov and added each one of them to a growing list. 60 to 70 names at the start. Here's my perspective. If, if no one has been charged with the crime, that means everyone had the potential to do it. From Q-Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, I'm David Kushner, and this is Crime Waves, Cold Truth. This is Episode 7, The Coldest Case. When Dr. Malov's case went cold, Christy Frazier was left with more questions than answers. It's unclear to me still to this day, was that police error or police lab error? You know, I feel like the blame got shifted and I'm not quite clear on how that was able to happen. Five years after Dr. Malov had died, his legacy lived on through Infinite Energy magazine. Christy was now the managing editor, and the office was still in the same historic house in a suburb of Concord, New Hampshire. That's where Christy was working when she got a surprise phone call in early 2009 from the new detectives working Dr. Malov's case. One of the first things they asked me, actually on a telephone call, was, what did I think about the conspiracy angle? And I was sort of floored, you know, oh my God, where are they going with this? And I said, are you looking into that? Curtis explained that they'd received a number of these kinds of calls from people in the scientific community, even some who were not known to be conspiracy theorists at all. Christy, of course, knew about them all. There's been five or six quote unquote suspicious deaths in the new energy field prior to Gene's death. I can understand where people would think that Gene's death also fit into that category. For me, um, that was never a consideration. After talking with the detective for a while, Christy was glad they were covering all of the bases. They made arrangements to talk again, this time in person. And the next day, Detective Curtis and his partner showed up at the Infinite Energy office. When they sat down to talk, Christy couldn't help but be critical of the last investigators. Jean spent, you know, 10 hours a day with me. You know, just jokingly, I said, I could have killed him. They didn't even consider me as an option. Curtis and his partner were careful not to discredit their colleagues, but they couldn't ignore that there were some problems. They did acknowledge that there was a, a theory that they thought panned out, and so they didn't really pursue a lot of leads that they should have. But the second group of investigators, they asked a lot of great questions, and there were some things that they 
felt like didn't get answered the first time around. And they were curious what my take on it was, you know, like I appreciated that they did a lot of like work that should have been done the first time around. Christy spoke with Curtis and his partner for hours. And while she didn't feel like she had a smoking gun that would help them solve the case, she did have her own theories about who may have killed Jean Malov. I felt very strongly from the minute that Ethan called me that the, the tenants had something to do with his death. Christy had never met the tenants renting out Malov's childhood home, but she knew he was having some problems with them. When he first started renting to them, things were going fine, but within a few months, the tenants had stopped paying rent. Malov had evicted them and was cleaning up the house when he died. I, I didn't know the ins and outs of their lives or what the specifics, but he had told me enough where I just thought, you know, something, something doesn't seem right here. Back in the Norwich Police Department, Curtis and his partner began looking into the people who lived in the house. The initial investigation had found that some of them had an alibi. But since then, one of the tenants seemed more suspicious than ever. A guy named Lenny. Lenny was a, a violent guy, and he was locked up in Massachusetts for a stabbing that he had committed in 2008. And so, kind of fit the mold a little bit, you know? Lenny became their first suspect. They began looking into him, talking with anyone they could find who knew him. And then they went to the prison where he was held and talked with Lenny themselves. The conversation didn't last long. He, he essentially said, you know, no, it wasn't me. And he told us, you know, the truth. It wasn't him. We had nothing to link him to it. But he did tell us enough information that we should start looking about other people in the apartment. But nothing immediately stood out. So Curtis continued to press on and investigate. He crisscrossed the Northeast from Massachusetts to Pennsylvania to interview people Maloff had come into contact with over the years. Former magazine employees, nuclear scientists, intellectual foes. But after months of this, the case was still as cold as it had been from the day he started. If he couldn't find what he was looking for, maybe he could get the information to come to him. In spring 2009, Christy Frazier drove from New Hampshire to Norwich, Connecticut. What she'd gone there to see loomed over the corner of a busy intersection on Main Street. It was very shocking to see the face of somebody you cared for on a billboard like that. Investigators thought putting up several billboards with Malov's picture and a reward might lead to some tips. Christie had helped pay for it with Malov's nonprofit, the New Energy Foundation, who shared the cost with Dr. Malov's family. There were five billboards around Eastern Connecticut. It had a picture of Gene from one of his children's wedding. It's only from sort of the neck up, but you can tell he's wearing, I think, a tuxedo because it looks like a bow tie in the picture. And he has a nice smile on, which he oftentimes didn't smile a certain way for his professional photos. It asked the question, who murdered Eugene? In bold black letters, over top a bright red and yellow background, it read, 
reward $50,000 and listed the number for the investigative task force. You don't see a lot of billboards like that, at least around New England. So yeah, it was, um, it was hard to see that billboard, but any piece of information in an unsolved murder could potentially be the thing that breaks the case open. Tips began rolling in very quickly, but not the tips they had hoped for. A lot of them, you know, were just people looking to try to collect on a reward that didn't actually know anything. For months after the billboards went up, they didn't get a single helpful call, no solid leads, nothing. Until one spring night when a woman walked through the door of the Norwich Police Department and told Curtis about the bloody clothes. It's 1986, Newark, and Michael Morrison is offered the opportunity of a lifetime. A new job, a fresh start with a secure future as a cop. But Mike has no idea he's about to join what he calls the biggest gang in America. I'm Saren Jones, and this is Black and Blue Behind the Badge, a story about what happens when you have to pick a side. Follow Black and Blue Behind the Badge on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was May 2009, five years to the month since Dr. Eugene Malov's murder. Curtis was working at his desk in the back of the police station when a woman walked in, saying she wanted to talk to him about the man on the billboards. Curtis sat down to talk with her. The woman's name was Jill. She was a young mother from Norwich. She said she'd been driving by the billboards with Dr. Malov's face on them for weeks now. A few weeks earlier, she was hanging out at her apartment with an old friend named Candace Foster and Foster's boyfriend, Chad Schaefer. While they were chatting, Jill mentioned the billboards and said she couldn't stop thinking about that bushy bearded guy because he looked like her stepfather. And that's when something weird happened. Chad Schaefer abruptly left the room and Candace Foster followed him into the kitchen. Jill overheard Foster trying to calm Schaefer down, saying there's nothing to worry about. They don't know anything. Then Jill remembered something else that had happened five years earlier. In May 2004, around the time Dr. Malov was murdered, Jill was sharing an apartment with Candace Foster and Chad Schaefer. And one day, inside that apartment, she saw something very unusual. She saw bloody clothes. The name Chad Schaefer was familiar to Curtis for a good reason. Schaefer's parents were the tenants renting Malov's house, and Chad lived there with them before they were evicted. It was their stuff that Malov had been clearing out of the house the night that he was killed. Detectives in the initial investigation had interviewed Schaefer, who said he was out of town. He said he was a mystic with a girl named Jessica on the night of the murder. Initially, police were not sure about this alibi. We couldn't determine one or the other. Couldn't yeah. find him on video down there. Couldn't find him on video anywhere else. Yeah. 
um, they had a, a, a receipt, uh, something for the Mystic Drawbridge. So they kind of gave him the, the pass on that one. Plus, in the minds of the detectives during the first investigation back in 2004, Schaefer didn't jump out as an obvious suspect. You know, people are evicted every single day yeah. and they don't kill their landlord, right. you know? right. Now, Curtis put Chad Schaefer's story back under the microscope. After Jill's visit, Curtis went back to the crime scene photos, searching for any clue that he and his colleagues might have missed. He kept coming back to the pictures of the dumpster that Malov was using to empty the house. There was junk strewn around it on the ground, a bicycle, a towel, a stereo box filled with cords, all covered in grass clippings from when Malov had mowed the lawn earlier that day. And then Curtis saw something that he had missed. A little keychain in the shape of a sun. It was one of those shrinky-dink toys, things that kids mold out of colored plastic and then shrink down in an oven. And the tag had a name on it. It said Brittany on it. So we could actually make out her name on, on the photograph. Clean as a whistle. And that's what stood out to him. I'm looking at it. I can't figure out why there's grass clippings all over everything by the dumpster, except for on the keys. Not at one stitch of grass clipping. Curtis thought it could mean... Those keys were placed there after the grass was all cut. So we're looking at the keys and we're like, this is crazy. You know, whose are these keys? And who's Brittany? The name on the keychain. If Curtis could answer this, he might be able to unravel everything. So he turned to someone he thought would know the answer. Candace Foster. Do you want to hear something spooky? Some monster was standing there. It reminded me of Bigfoot. In walks a tall, gray alien. One of the teenage boys started to exhibit signs of textbook demonic possession. I'm Derek Hayes, host of Monsters Among Us podcast. This pure all-white entity staring straight at me. Where there should have been eye sockets, there weren't. Monsters Among Us is an anthology of real paranormal stories told by real witnesses. I never really believed in this Loch Ness Monster nonsense, but something very snake-like lifted its head out of the water. A giant black triangle. It was so big that it blotted out the stars. And I saw what looked like a huge monster. I could see the outline of hair. New episodes of Monsters Among Us drop every Thursday. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Somehow I had lost eight whole hours. Lauren. Mike. So we host a podcast for Wired called Gadget Lab. We do. We do. <laughs> yes, that is correct. <laughs> Tell the good people some more about it. Well, I think the good people should definitely tune in every week because they get to hear me roasting you. Hey, now. All right. No, really what Gadget Lab is, is Mike and I tackling the biggest questions in the world of technology. We cover the big news of the week in tech land, but we also offer our expert analyses and opinions on all things consumer tech. We release a new episode of Gadget Lab every week, and you can listen and follow us wherever you pod.
Candace Foster was in her late 20s with reddish hair. She'd been in a relationship with Chad Schaefer for years at this point. They had two kids together. Since May 2009, Curtis had been questioning Candace based on the information her friend Jill had reported. He had a feeling that she wasn't being honest with him, though. So he brought her into the station to try a new method of questioning, a lie detector test. We went to polygraph Candace, and she freaked out. Typical response of a person who's going to lie. Candace refused to take the test, but Curtis kept pressing on. In November 2009, he put the photo of the keychain in front of her. Did she recognize it? Candace stared at it and finally said, those are Chad Schaefer's keys. Brittany, his daughter from a previous relationship, had made him that keychain as a gift. And Candace told Curtis that she knew Chad must have had those keys on him when he moved out of the house in Norwich. She knew this because those keys had been missing from his apartment where they usually hung by the front door and they had disappeared at some point in May, 2004. So Candace told Curtis the story of what happened on May 14th. The night before, Chad had left the apartment he shared with Candace and didn't come home. She and Chad's mom had tried to reach him all day, but he didn't come home until later in the afternoon. When he comes in, Candace says, hey, your mom's been looking for you. I've been calling you all day. You're not answering the phone calls. She remembered that Chad Schaefer really was in Mystic, Connecticut. She told him he needed to call his mom because there was a problem with the landlord at the house they used to rent in Norwich. Chad went upstairs and called his mom, who had some choice words for him. I've been telling you for weeks to get over there and clean out your shit out of the house. Now he's over there throwing the stuff in the dump, so you better go over there and take care of it and fix it. Chad Schaefer then called his cousin, Moselle Brown, and headed for the door to leave. And then he grabs the keys, says, meet me outside when you go down and pay a visit to this guy. When Chad Schaefer and Moselle Brown came back to the apartment later that evening, Candace noticed that Schaefer's NBA jersey and pajama pants were spattered with blood. And whatever nightmare had just happened wasn't over yet. According to Candace Foster, Chad Schaefer and Moselle Brown forced her to come with them. They got in a car and they drove back to the two-story White House in Norwich. And that's when she saw him a man in the driveway. It was Dr. Malov. The next part may be hard to listen to, so feel free to skip ahead to avoid disturbing images. Malov had been beaten nearly to death. Candace Foster said they wanted to make sure the job was done, so Chad Schaefer and Moselle Brown forced her to hit Malov. As she later told Curtis, they wanted cover, so they made her join in on the beating too until they were sure he was dead. To make the scene look like a robbery, they took Malov's wallet, grabbed his keys, and drove away with his van. 
And they left him alone on the driveway outside of the house. And that's where he remained until Dimitri's Granger found him and called the police for help. On April 1st, 2010, Detective Curtis pulled up behind a house in Norwich with a partner. They parked outside and waited until they saw a man come out of the back door. A heavyset guy in his early 30s with a round face, dark hair, and a thin patchy beard. Then they walked up to him. Curtis had been preparing for this conversation with Chad Schaefer for a long time. He confronted Schaefer with what Schaefer's ex, Candace Foster, had said about the murder of Malov. Foster had been in witness protection for a year now since coming clean to the cops. Curtis told Schaefer he knew everything. He told him about the keychain they found at the crime scene with his daughter Brittany's name on it. He told him all the details about the beating of Malov, the bloody clothes, how Candace Foster said she was forced to come back with him and Brown to finish killing Malov and then cover it up to make sure it looked like a robbery. After more than a year working the cold case of Eugene Malov's murder, talking with professors, late nights reading up on nuclear science, driving all over New England, all that research and investigation had led him to this moment, to Schaefer. He needed the truth. And unbeknownst to Schaefer, Curtis's partner was wearing a hidden mic and camera which were recording the entire conversation. And when Curtis finished laying out all his evidence, all he could do was wait. Wait to hear what, if anything, Schaefer had to say for himself about what really happened that night on the driveway in Norwich. Now you want to have blood in your clothing, just one punch, but shows that you participated more heavily in the crime. If you looked at the interview, it might be argued that the police were sort of feeding their theory right. to Mr. Schaefer. I'm sure that when powerful organizations have people killed or eliminated, they don't do it in easily traceable ways. So how did they connect you to the crime? Someone placed me there. That's coming up on the final episode of Crime Waves, Cold Truth. From Q-Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, this is episode seven of eight of Crime Waves, Cold Truth. Cold Truth is hosted by me, David Kushner, and based on my article, The Coldest Case. The events in this series are true and actually happened, but some reenactment details are dramatized. Actor Jason Kravitz is the voice of Dr. Malov and the dialogue is drawn from Malov's extensive writings and speeches. The series is written, reported, and produced by me, David Kushner, Heather Schrering, and Sean Cannon for No Smiling, and Graylin Brashear. Original music and sound design by John Eckhouse. Fact-checking by Rebecca Nelson. Additional writing by Rolf Potts. Managing producer is Daniel Rafe. Marketing lead is Ellie Kotopish. Executive produced by Stephen Kanner, Jamie Schutz, and me, David Kushner, for Faceplant. 
and Rob Herding and David Henning for Q Code. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And tell your friends about us. The next episode will be out in a week. Don't miss it. Be sure to follow Crime Wave's Cold Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.